What's up, everybody? Are you tuning in to the Challenge USA on CBS? Well, tune in to me, Tyson Apostle, as I break down each and every episode with my co-host, Amelia Wedemeyer. I'm also a contestant on the show, which gives you all the insider scoop. Amelia, how stoked are you to do this? Tyson, I'm freaking excited. I cannot wait to sit my butt down every single week to watch the show, then come here and recap it with you on the Ringer Reality TV podcast. This episode is brought to you by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem. Sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts, real people who love this stuff, with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Ringer Dish. I am Juliet Littman. Today, I am joined by Zach Peter from No Filter. Zach Peter. Zach, hello. Hello, hello. You, the listener, can't see this. Zach, I love your shirt with the cacti. Thank you. Um, my mother started doing, uh, she started making upcycled art with different oh cacti. God. And cool. so she bought me this shirt so that when she would have a pop-up, I would wear this specifically so that I could take pictures with her cacti <laughs> to promote her on Instagram. So, well, you know, it's working. Marketing. I love it. She's <laughs> a genius. Um, Zach, you are big in the Bravo and reality space, and you're bringing your talents here to bring your dish. And today we are here to talk about Victoria's Secret, Angel and Demons, which is a three-part miniseries on Hulu, ostensibly about Victoria's Secret and the culture of angels as brought to us by the men of that company. But it's really about a lot more. We really will be talking, you know, mostly focusing on Victoria's Secret because that's kind of like the relevant part to pop culture. But we have to talk about this so-called doc to begin with. What did you think of it? 
Okay, so I was watching part one and I was like actually pretty hooked. I was like, okay, like I want to see where this goes. We're introducing Jeffrey Epstein. Like, you know, I obviously remember Victoria's Secret. I mean, I was a 90s baby. So I remember it when it was like, you know, hot, sexy angel models with the wings that I wanted to get cute little sexy pink shorts to put on my butt. Um, But that was obviously (laughs) not appropriate to wear to like middle school. But the documentary itself, part one hooked me. And then part two, I was like, okay, where are we going with this? It was a little hard to keep up with. And then part by part three, I felt like I was like in a car accident and had whiplash because we had so many different theories that were coming at us. And I like, I didn't even know, like my notes were all over the place as I was watching this documentary. Same. I I was excited to dig into angel culture, which I am still excited to dig into. It's so, it yeah. really was like one of the most successful marketing campaigns of my formative years as well. But I was so distracted by how angry I felt at this documentary. Like it really overwhelmed me. I will say on a personal level, I am Jewish. And so this documentary really positioned Les Wexner as like aspirational Jewish man. And while I acknowledge that might be who he is, placed him like in this like so-called paradigm with so little context and so little information that I I just thought it was playing into stereotypes and cliches. And it, it like honestly offended me. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, for me on a personal note, I was, I'm a big Kardashians fan. And so when I saw Kendall Jenner being a little rude to the girl in the first part where she was looking on the phone and she was kind of being, you know, not very pleasant, I was offended that they showed the Kardashians in a bad light, Juliet. <laughs> Um, sorry that I'm laughing if you're offended. I, I, I should, I didn't mean to laugh. I just, you know, offense comes in lots of ways, but they ca- they also like kept coming back to it. They're like, he wanted to be Ralph Lauren, who of course his real name is Ralph Lifschultz. And it's like, okay, many people change their name. And then Jeffrey Epstein is also Jewish, but it just kept, it kept applying overtly that there's like some kind of like Jewish cabal that actually has very little to do with their religion or even the culture, just the fact that they all are. And that's why I found it offensive. And they really did keep coming back to it. And even worse was the two talking heads who they have talking about it, I think are also Jewish. I was like, as if to like give them cover for introducing this. And that really offended me. So was the offense more because they made it seem like because he was Jewish, he had this like ambition that was so, you know, over the top that it made him like this monster. Yes. Yes. It was like some kind of like rapacious capitalism that led him to a life of depravity alongside Jeffrey Epstein. And that really bothered me. No, because that also is kind of like why they tied into why he decided to build his own little community in Ohio is because he wanted to like stick it to the people in Ohio. Yeah, he wanted to. They said he wanted to stick it to the Goyam in Ohio that he built New Albany. And they made it like a religious cultural thing. I just thought that was really fucking weird. And I was like, what's the evidence of that? There, it, it might be true, right? We'll see. But that's the thing in the documentary overall is I feel like where's the evidence, you know, like there were a lot of the insinuations. There were a lot of, you know, vague sort of implications of things without really backing anything up. And they introduced so many different ideas that I, I didn't really know what was substantial to the point where I was like, I don't think Jeffrey Epstein had anything to do with Victoria's Secret now that the fact that we're merging these two worlds into one documentary to me just didn't make any sense. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And then at the at the end, the other thing that I found just completely ludicrous was that they spent like 10 minutes on did Les Wexner and Jeffrey Epstein have a sexual relationship? And was it more than 
what we can tell on the surface. And I was like, I don't know. But Jeffrey Epstein did testify in a deposition that they did not. So unless he perjured himself, that's what he said. I mean, we can't, he's no longer with us. And also he's not reliable. So maybe he did, but I just thought that was like, so beside the point, the the nature of their relationship was irrelevant to like, clearly the, the obvious shadiness that went along with it. Oh, 1000%. I mean, the gay lover theory, I mean, yes, is is an interesting theory and, a, and an interesting rabbit hole to go down. There was really no substance to it. But there, I mean, it was more of like their relationship that I think was more of the story rather than its connection to Victoria's Secret, which is why I found it so interesting that they use Victoria's Secret as kind of the hook. I mean, granted, we probably wouldn't have been as interested to watch if there wasn't the big, you know, marketing ploy of utilizing Victoria's Secret, but it was just a very, you know, disconjointed sort of documentary and the way that we would jump back and forth and the uh, the transitions weren't very clear. Like it really was, we would follow two very distinct storylines that really didn't have much overlap other than the fact that, you know, one time, maybe twice, Jeffrey Epstein said he happened to be a recruiter for Victoria's Secret. Yeah, it just, it was so like, Forcing the Jeffrey Epstein issue. And by the way, it's not that I'm like a Jeffrey Epstein defender or apologist. I'm, of course, revolted by the by him and Ghislaine Maxwell as well. I mean, it's like it just was such a weird piece of this doc. And the shit that went on with Victoria's Secret is appalling enough. It wasn't you didn't didn't really need it. No, like they should have been too. Well, I mean, I feel like we already knew the story of Victoria's Secret, the rise and the fall, the Vogue interview with Ed. Like we kind of followed it culturally that I think the Epstein piece was interesting. It just didn't connect for me, you know? And then we had so many theories of like the artificial insemination and then the the AI. Like I was like, where are we going with any of this? I just. I know. It was too much, but. It was let's too talk, much. Let's talk about the Victoria's Secret of it all. I had I had to air the grievances up top because I was so outraged. But now that we have, and thanks for bearing with me, Zach, let's talk about the Victoria's Secret of it all. And I do think that part was done much better because they had so many inside people willing to talk. I mean, of all the people in the doc, like who really like had the biggest impact on you that you thought of the most? Uh, Kendall Jenner, obviously. <laughs> no, I'm I'm kidding. Um, who was it? Cindy, the former executive. Yeah. I thought she she revealed quite a bit. I mean, she was pretty consistent throughout all three parts of the of the documentary, and I feel like she was really integral because she had the inside knowledge of what was going on at the company. She had such a high level executive position, and she's really distanced herself from the brand way before any of the Epstein ties came into it. Yeah, she was just uncomfortable with the direction of of the company in general. But, um, you said you knew about the Vogue interview and that guy we'll talk about as well. He's the one who really led the marketing charge. His name is Ed Razek. Did you know about, do you remember that article? Cause I don't like, maybe I wasn't reading Vogue at the time or whatnot, but I just didn't remember it. Was that on your radar when it happened? Well, look, I'll be clear. It wasn't much of a Vogue bitch back in the day, but I was watching like Good Morning America and I remember seeing snippets of the interview coming out about like this big scandal. I always loved like tabloid scandal and, you know, extra and, you know, Good Morning America pop culture coverage. So I remember when that came out and thinking like, oh, I I was even kind of like at that point, like Victoria's Secret kind of needs to get on the boat. Like, you know, inclusion, diversity, you know, body positivity, all those things were already starting to come 
come to the forefront that I was surprised that they really were resistant. I didn't understand it until watching the documentary. Now you see, you know, Ed and Les were two of the, you know, loudest voices at Victoria's Secret that were driving the charge of the marketing. But I do remember it coming out. And I remember thinking like, this sounds really bad because they took a lot of his quotes. And I remember it being all over the news at the time. Yeah. So it occurs to me that we didn't really set the scene of what is happening in this documentary because I was so overwhelmed by my rage. So <laughs> let's, let's <laughs> I, I, at least for you, it was rage for me. It was just like confusion of trying to keep all the different theories straight. And then, you know, the, the transitions were so abrupt between like, we're talking about the angels and we're talking about designing the wings and Heidi Klum wants the biggest wings. And then all of a sudden we're back to like Epstein on a plane with Ghislaine. And I'm like, how, what, where, like, how did we, I know. So basically angel and demons, a three-part series, or excuse me, Victoria's secret angels and demons, the three-part series on Hulu tracks the rise of Victoria's Secret to like this total dominance in the late 2000s, up to the late 2000s, under the ownership of Les Wexner, who we've mentioned many times, and its demise, which is tied to the rise of social media, a changing attitude towards women's bodies across social media and in marketing campaigns, and the downfall of Jeffrey Epstein as well. So those are sort of like the strands and the Jeffrey Epstein piece of it. I think we should leave that for now. We can come back to it. But I actually did learn a lot myself about Victoria's Secret and how it started. For example, I had no idea that it started as a catalog business by someone else unless Wester acquired it. I was shocked by that. I didn't even know people used catalogs to buy lingerie or to buy like <laughs> underwear. Like I was like, who goes on a catalog? Like at least now you have like e-commerce where you go online and it's a little more discreet. And even Adam and Eve are kind of like, we will, we have discreet packaging. So where you don't <laughs> like, it's not like so explicit that like, you know, your lace panties have arrived in the mail, but to note that there was like a whole catalog and that it was built on the premise of when men wanted to buy underwear for their wives. They wanted them to feel a little more secure. So let's start a catalog. So that way it's not embarrassing for them to actually go in store and buy it. Yeah. I like, it actually was born out of some cliches too, of just like, Oh, men need to be able to buy lingerie discreetly, which, (laughs) which I had no idea about. And then Victoria was like a fake character. She was like, a career woman who they, you know, was like really formidable. And like, they, they kind of, it sort of was like Jay Peterman, but for women. And I had no idea about that either. Like I've always thought of it as a mall store. Same. That's all I ever remember. I don't remember it being a catalog and I had no idea who Victoria was. I remember being in the mall and being like, who is Victoria and why does she have secrets and why are people going in to, you know, buy her secrets? So I mean, knowing that they, it was a fake character that was based off of a book that Les had read about how to market. And it was really just about how a brand needs to have a story, which is like one of the most common marketing tactics in all of the marketing books now is like, you need to have a brand story and you need to tell the story behind the brand. But usually when they do that, it's like, oh, you know, we're Joe and Lindsay and we grew up on a farm and we decided (laughs) to start this business on our farm. And it's like a real story. Like nobody made up an entire person, but they literally created this Victoria character that was a businesswoman and was a little, you know, sexy, but also mysterious. And she was British because British was, you know, the most sexy (laughs) of them all. 
I was like, I don't. And then they would show the commercials and I was like, nothing about these British women are sexy to me. I mean, to be fair, I don't know if I'm the person to judge that, but nothing about it was like, you know, sexy lingerie. Yeah. It was very more. It's definitely very different than what we think of Victoria's Secret as now. The British piece of it definitely resonates for me, but that might just be because I'm an Anglophile and like I also like to buy clothes from like British brands like Bowdoin and whatnot. But see, British women just don't do it for me, Julia. At but all? like, you know. What about Caroline Stanberry? <laughs> um, listen, only if I could jump in bed with her and her husband. Give me Sergio <laughs> and I'm down. Okay. Then then you're on board. <laughs> I will buy Victoria's Secret when Sergio models for it. Understood. Okay. Well, I that that original idea worked for me. And then, so Les buys the business. He already has started the limited. And I don't think I ever knew they were ultimately part of the same company. But I will say, instinctively, as also, I was, you know, born in the 80s, but a 90s child. My consciousness came to be in the 90s. The limited, Express, Victoria's Secret, like... Those were definitive brands that like really defined style and like getting to go to those stores was such a big deal. And the marketing was really manipulative and really successful. Like as I was watching the doc, I felt that really, really intensely. And it was like kind of funny, like how like seeing some of the old marketing campaigns and old clothes really, really brought me back. And I, I don't know if you had the same experience, but it was like a sensory overload. I was like, oh, right, this clothing. And it was like intended to be the sensory overload. And the way they produced everything, like you see the Victoria's Secret ads and how they were meant to be like movies. And it was meant to be this aspirational life that you wanted to like attain. And I remember having that feeling going in the malls, looking at all, I mean, just walking and seeing the different stores, not Victoria's Secret specifically, but just, you know, the way that they were able to hone in on creating this lifestyle that people wanted to aspire to have. And that's why you would shop at these stores like Abercrombie and Fitch or Hollywood or Victoria's Secret. Right, right. It was it was so aspirational, but yet attainable. Like it was right in front of yeah. your face, but it was always kind of expensive for what it was. I mean, if I ever wanted to buy something there, I had to like save my allowance for many weeks to be able to do so. No. Right, right. right. But, but it was interesting to see how they would go and essentially steal these ideas from, you know, the south of France. And they would find these like really high end fashion pieces and then bring them back to the U.S. and and sell them for a lot cheaper. So maybe to us, it felt like we were spending a lot of money on these items. But the fact that there was that aspirational side of knowing that they cost a lot more elsewhere, but there's like that accessibility that we have through these brands, that was really smart of them marketing as well. Yeah. And something that I said, I think in episode one, which is quite nefarious, but certainly not on the level of um, sex trafficking is Les Wexner with his brands defined or um, invented fast fashion, which fast fashion, yeah. now is, you know, just taken for granted. Like, yeah, Forever 21, H&M and so many others, even Old Navy and Target, like fast fashion is such a part of the like fashion lexicon, but it, he really popularized it, which, which I thought was like a really interesting insight because as we talked about, there's such, it's so hard to keep up with the various threads of the doc, but there was a real business and marketing genius to what they were doing. 
Yeah, because he was a very data-driven person. He was like, okay, if the consumer's coming into the mall three to four times a week, then we need to make sure every time they come in, it feels like a different experience, which to me, three to four times a week seems like a lot. Like, who has the time to be going to the mall three to four times a week? Like, the mall is an experience for me. When I would go to the mall, it was like an experience and, like, lucky to go in, like, once a week. Where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in L.A. Gotcha, because I grew up in New York. I grew up in the outskirts. Got it. I, I grew up in New York City. Malls weren't a huge part of my life, but when I did go to them, I loved them because it was like, yeah, it was just so special. It was like a merry, it was like a merry ground. They had merry grounds. And they were like an amusement park or whatever. I was like, wow, we're at a mall. Yeah. Um, and so the one of the really pivotal people to this story who we mentioned briefly, but is this guy Ed Razek, who joined the Limited in 1983, and he ushered in the Victoria's Secret fashion show, which really became fam- more and more famous, like really till the mid aughts or the mid tens when it died off. And his name was Ed Razek, and he was sort of like. He was the real marketing guru behind the, what I would call, oppressive beauty standards of of the angels. Had you heard of him? No. I mean, I I guess I remember the executive that spoke in the Vogue interview that that kind of blew the lid on Victoria's Secret, but I didn't really know who he was at all. The most amazing thing about him to me was that at no point in the doc or really at any time that I can tell that he ever like feel remorse or like feel like he did anything harmful. Like he was just like, yeah, this is what men want. That's it. To the, yeah. And even his most recent interviews, he was like, look, I did what I wanted. And then the culture changed and all these woke people just kicked me out. Like he like still has not gotten with the times of like realizing, you know, his ideas were so out of date, but not only that, but like you even think of how much like social media and e-commerce really started to blow up that like thinking that your business model being viable in malls that were slowly starting to die in the early 2010s coming into the era that we're now in, like, like even that wasn't much of a priority for them either. So yeah. his whole pulse on marketing and business were just not really there. I mean, it worked in 2002 when you have these, you know, hot models coming off of a spaceship and angel wings and bikinis. Like, sure, okay, that worked for that moment. But, you know, that was only so viable for so long. And I just want to say the moment you're referring to was in 2003. The first Victoria's Secret fashion show with angels was that year. And the documentary points out that the different models would compete over like who had the biggest wings. And there was just so many photos and and, like photo calls in the doc that really made me cringe, like with Heidi Klum and um, the Hadids. And it was really, oh man, is there, is there a specific fashion show that sticks out to you? I remember like, for me, it was Justin Timberlake one. I think that was 2007. For me, I think it was the Justin Bieber one. That's in the doc too. Yeah. That was a good one. He was, he's a talented guy. <laughs> he is. I was, it was like, take me back to that Bieber day. Like the Bieber today, you know, it's a little, he's a little more rugged. I get it. You want to be a man now, but like he was, he was, he was popping baby, baby, baby. <laughs> I was like, take me back. Yeah. He, he still has a ton of hits. I have to say, I do really like his music. Um, the other like kind of like really nefarious marketing angle was the, was the uh, introduction of pink, which I have to say, hit me hard when I was young. I really wanted like pink clothing and it was slightly cheaper. As I said in the doc, it was really geared towards high school girls. It really, that was another really potent introduction. I don't know if it has the same effect for you. I remember pink because that was kind of like the younger 
version of Victoria's Secret. It was marketed to like girls in like middle school and high school versus like this sexy lingerie that's, you know, marketed to to someone who's a little bit older. It is interesting though, because I was like kind of trying to come up with like different theories as to what um, Les and Jeffrey Epstein's relationship may have been. And it's interesting that we have Ed and Les that, that were such driving forces for the Victoria's Secret brand. And we have these other women that were working for the company at the time and they wanted to do maternity wear or shapewear. And they wanted to kind of make sure that the woman was prioritized because it operated under this guise of being, you know, a female empowerment brand. And so it was interesting that they shied away from maternity wear and they shied away from shapewear, but they decided to start marketing to a younger audience. Mm -hmm. And then they have these fashion shows that are sexualizing the pink brand because you have these models that are uh, wearing toys and it's very, you know, circus themed or whatever the playful kitty element was, but it was also modeling, you know, these clothes in a very sexualized way. And so to me, I was like, that's interesting because if Ed and Les were really kind of the brains behind the business and the brains behind the marketing, I wonder if this takes us into their psyche Mm -hmm. of being, of sexualizing young women. And maybe that's a connection that ties us in with Jeffrey Epstein, since we know he was sex trafficking young women. That's a really, essentially. It's a really interesting point. And also just, I think represents a worldview of women being, being toys themselves because another, another accusation that was denied, but the, um, documentary on earth is that Jeffrey Epstein posed as uh, an employee of Victoria's secret to recruit models. And the documentary claims or a statement was released by Les Wexner's team that, that that Jeffrey Epstein only purported to work for the company once. And he told him it was a violation of company policy and he never did it again. So they deny it. But even if it happened once, it does really fit into what you're saying, where it's like this view of using Victoria's Secret no longer as like a women's empowerment through lingerie, but much more about like the, the way that the men control them and see them essentially and how like the men serve their visions essentially. And it could tie into the theory of maybe they were connected to Epstein and they did take trips to the island. And maybe, you know, that was part of the blackmail that he had on them. And that's why he was able to kind of stay so heavily involved in the Wexner brands. And, you know, just to kind of give that insight as to, okay, well, if he saw, you know, sexualization of younger women in this way, then it's not too far of a reach to assume that he may have been involved in this circle of men that were exploiting young children. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think a couple other like key data points that we learned from the doc and, and also there's a real, there's a, um, a podcast about this as well called fallen angel, which focuses a lot on Lexner and the downfall of Victoria's secret. And it obviously has some of the Epstein thread as well, but I think it's more focused on the company itself, but, Wexner gave Epstein complete power of attorney over his all of his uh, personal finances. So Epstein could do whatever with uh, with Wexner's money. And then in the town that Wexner built a planned city called New Albany right outside of Columbus, Epstein lived uh, in a property that was technically on the same property as Wexner's home. And there is a woman in the dock whose name is Maria Farmer. And she says that uh, Epstein invited her back to his house, the one that was on the same property as Wexner's and claimed that Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell assaulted her. So, you know, it's basically impossible to separate the rise 
of Victoria's Secret and Wexner's wealth from Jeffrey Epstein, which is why he's in the dock so much. But I think the way that you're explaining it is honestly just a, a more cogent and easier to understand explanation of why the two have to be told together, essentially. Because there's just so many circumstances, there's so much circumstantial evidence of them, you know, being intertwined. I think the frustrating part of the documentary, though, is I really had to think about it and try to analyze it. I had to make the case for them. Whereas when you're coming to a documentary, you want to know the pieces, you want to know the facts. And at some point, by the end of the documentary, you want to know what the conclusion is. And I feel like the documentary didn't do a good job of taking us to any sort of conclusions. It took us on a lot of, I was on like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and we went through, you know, a lot of twists and turns, but it never really resulted in anything other than Epstein's case blew up and then everybody, you know, Ed ended up dropping off the company and uh, Les ended up dropping off the company and that's really it. Like, yeah, he resigned uh, a year ago. Yeah. And I, I so, there, was, there were some other like really interesting bits that I wish had gotten more attention because one of the kind of final notes of the doc is comparing the rise of Rihanna's Savage by Fenty with Victoria's Secret and how this ties into Ed Razick's downfall and what he is talking about in the Vogue article. But, um, Brianna is a billionaire, and that is in large part due to the success of her Fenty brands. And part of that was in 2018, she did her own fashion show, and it had a really wide range of bodies and a a wide range of women in it. And similarly, her makeup is beloved for the incredibly broad range of skin tones that that it um, services. And Ed was like, if we had done that, it would have seemed like we were pandering. And that was sort of the death knell for Ed. But I think the impact the Victoria's Secret and like its omnipresence had on a generation of women like cannot be understated. As I was watching it, I was like, oh, yeah, when I was younger, I thought this was like the standard of beauty and like the only one. And there was I just wish that they had like dug into that more, honestly, because it it was so it was so limiting, such a limited point of view. No pun intended with the limited. No, I think the limit came with the fact that we were trying to merge these two different ideas. I feel like it was two separate ideas that we should have really explored. And what you're touching on is like Victoria's Secret set the standard of beauty, you know, because it was so big, because it was such like a global empire and it was bringing in what, billions of dollars a year? You know, it really revolutionized what it meant to be sexy because their campaign was so explicitly sexy and they were very specific about differentiating themselves to not fall into the trashy lingerie category, to not be lumped in with like a hustler sort of uh, category. They wanted to make sure that it was more mainstream, but it was also, you know, still kind of riding that line. I think they said that like their campaigns and their ads really danced on that fine line between soft porn and lingerie marketing. And I think that they set that bar. And eventually, once people realized how unattainable it was, like, yes, we all want something aspirational, but we want the aspirational to be something that we can ultimately achieve. And these women and their bodies, like, it was unattainable to the point where people got sick and tired of it. And that's where you started to see all these other brands start to come to the forefront. And that, I think, was just one of the many reasons it ultimately ended up crumbling. Yeah. Also, you know, as it got more ridiculous and and we talked about when the laundry is literally them just like wearing toys, you never, you know, I no longer really understood why they were doing it except for just marketing. Like as it became bigger and bigger, it became like less effective because there was nothing, there was nothing attainable about it to your point. Like you couldn't be like, oh, I'm going to go out and buy that toy and wear it like to look hot or something or, or just, you know, like, oh, that underwear, I need to have it. Like it just... 
the brand didn't make sense as the men behind it continued to like push this really stubborn view of like of just completely unrealistic female bodies. Because it it went away from being a brand that empowered women to own their bodies, which is what they started as. That was one of the the early on premises. But then eventually it just became a entertainment brand for men. Yeah. For men to look at these pretty women and to watch these fashion shows. And you bring in Justin Timberlake and Justin Bieber to come and perform at these shows. And it just became entertainment more than it was marketing. And yes, there was still a cultural impact with it. But it, like you said, it really did kind of start to lose the objective. Yeah, it, it did. Like when it didn't become attainable, it was just like, okay, this is absurd. And I, and I do think, you know, there is a, a lingerie company called third love, which I don't know if you get targeted ads for it, but I get them a lot. And I was like, Oh, so did that come from the Vogue article? Because he says we're nobody's third love. We're first love. And I thought that was, I was like, huh, I didn't even realize that, but maybe that's just a phrase that other people know of. Like, have you ever heard the phrase third love used before? I've never heard the phrase third love. I've never even heard of the brand, to be honest with you. Yeah, because um, I'm sure you're not getting those targeted ads for bras. No, I'm, I'm sure now I'm sure now that, you know, yeah, is your phone nearby. Now I'm gonna start getting <laughs> I'm gonna start getting those targeted ads. But no, uh, my understanding was that that was like a newer up and coming brand at the time that he had said that in oh, the article. And it was like a subtle dig at like, that's a little brand. We're Victoria's Secret. I'm up here, you're down here. <laughs> you know, we're not anybody's third love were their first love. And I think gotcha. he thought he was being cute and cheeky by delivering that line. And it completely blew up because then we see the founder react to it in, you know, her confessional being like, they were, everybody was sending me this article because he said third love, which was a brand that we were doing that was focused on inclusivity. Right. Right. And I think the Rihanna comparison is like so important because first of all, Rihanna's amazing. But yes, everything that she does feels so genuine. I hesitate to use the word authentic because I think it's just like so overused in this day and age, but it just feels like Rihanna is doing, or at least in the more, you know, last 10 years of her career. I think when you're starting out as a young woman in music, it's probably different. And I'm sure she's got some stories to tell, but she's become so powerful and her vision for herself, at least to at least seems really clear. And so, you know, her creating a brand that is for all women doesn't seem like pandering because it's it's understands women. I think so much of what was behind Victoria's Secret and like one of the reasons why the like, you know, sexual harassment claims against Razik are not so surprising. And, you know, everything, everything that Jeffrey Epstein really defies belief. But at this point, we've heard a lot about it. Like this all kind of like makes sense as a narrative because it is so male driven and like a real absence of what actually women want or need versus a brand like Fenty, where she's just you know, from the jump, more thoughtful and inclusive about it. And it it is real in the re-examining Victoria's Secret, that part comes clear, becomes very clear. I was actually surprised that there was no mention of skims because even mm. though I think, you know, I think Savage by Fenty is kind of like the, you know, the superior brand when it comes to laundry. I mean, I love that even men are included in that one. There's no men's line at skims, um, nor is there for, you know, but it just goes to show you the range of inclusivity that Rihanna has been able to bring forth with hers. But I found it interesting that there really was no mention of skims or how pivotal, you know, even Spanx. the Kardashians became... Spanx. Spanx was another one, yeah. you know, with shapewear. That was another brand that I felt like 
it was odd that we didn't bring them up. But when it comes to Skim specifically, and I know a lot of people have, you know, mixed feelings about the Kardashians, but for me, it was more of like how Kim Kardashian and her sisters came in and they were more curvy. And around the time that people were starting to fight back on this perfect skin, you know, uh, stick thin image of what beauty meant, they kind of were starting to come into the picture in that 2007, 2008 time period. And we were starting to look at beauty standards very differently. And we have Kim Kardashian who now has the skin brand and you know they're very they try to be very inclusive in terms of you know the the diversity and the range of women and the way that the the shapewear is designed to you know be form fitting and also make women feel more empowered within their bodies that I was surprised to see skims and spanks not included at all. Yeah they made a mess they made a mention of like shapewear and how Victoria's Secret had no interest. The thing about skims I hear their products are great. I have I have my own problems with the Kardashian a pair of skims and and they it, I've it heard they're amazing my butt but they're great yeah <laughs> I also have, I've heard their bras are amazing like people say their products really are great I've got personal issues with how the Kardashians have made so much money yeah. in the beauty space when they are so dishonest about their own beauty strategies but that said I agree with you skims is is like genuinely additive to how people think about their bodies and the type of models they use and the shapes they serve um I would say if there's any brands to compare what Victoria's Secret was to where they're at now, I would say Savage by Fenty and Skims are the new Victoria's yeah. Secrets of today. I, I definitely agree with that. And also the price points are like are similar where they're not they're not cheap, but they're also not like out of range. Spanx is really expensive. Like it's, those products are a lot. So it's like, you, you know, you got to pony up for it. And, and I think that yeah. Savage, that Savage by Fenty and, and Skims have done a much better job, but that's, that's a good point. I mean, I also just have to say, I did a little bit of research on this documentarian and he was not that familiar with Victoria's Secret beforehand. And I'm not saying he couldn't become more familiar, but I do feel like some of the director's personal blind spots probably got in the way of the story he ended up telling. Cause I, I don't think, first of all, it, again, it was a man who maybe wasn't as viscerally or deeply impacted by some of the negative impacts of Victoria's secret. But also I think just sort of like not having more of that insight into like the rest of the, this market right now. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I read an article that said he was just so, he wasn't very familiar with Victoria's Secret at all. Like he kind of vaguely knew about it as a store at a mall, but I'm like, then I was kind of interested in being like, well, what piqued your interest yeah, in doing why'd you this documentary? Do this? And it was probably, I mean, my, you know, own conclusion was that he probably, it was probably wanting to explore the Epstein piece of it. And then they wanted to make sure people were interested in the Epstein piece of it. So then they tied in the Victoria's Secret piece of it because Victoria's Secret, you know, was more, um, it piqued our interest and, you know, was more culturally relevant, unfortunately, than the Epstein stuff was because that didn't really become popular until recently. Also, harder to confirm that stuff. I mean, everyone denies things. Epstein has died. Yeah. Maxwell's in jail. So I don't know. It's it was a it was a disappointing doc. But I do think that the like re, the rethinking of these beauty standards that really like had a stranglehold on culture is is ultimately positive. So I'm glad to be talking about it. Zach, thank you so much for joining me today on Ringer Dish. If you want more of Zach, follow him on social media, Just Plain Zach. And again, his podcast is No Filter with Zach Peters. Thank you so much. And uh, Tea Time will be back next Friday. Don't worry. And we have way more Ringer Dish coming at you next week.
This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.